First Thessalonians chapter four. I, I feel like I feel like I got a lot I want to try and say, and um, don't let that discourage you. Let's start with this. This week, read a book by a guy named Brad Gray. Uh, he shared this story, and as I heard the story, just an illustration, and it wasn't even about the book of the Bible per se. But as I heard the illustration, I thought, man, this sounds a lot like First Thessalonians in my mind. And, and so here's the story, some Jewish tradition that he shared. Uh, there's a rabbi walking home in the dark. Uh, he's thinking about life, thinking about all these things, deep in thought. And, and his turn is this small left-hand turn, and he misses it. And he continues down the, this other path that he normally doesn't walk. And a couple minutes go by, and he hears someone call out two questions to him. And the questions are, who are you, and what are you doing? And the rabbi stops and doesn't recognize the voice, startled. And he says to this, this voice, ask me those two questions again. And, and he finds out it's a Roman guard at some outpost. And the guard says, who are you and what are you doing here? And the rabbi asks the guard this question. How much do you get paid every day? The car, guard's kind of stunned, shares with him what he gets paid every day. And he says, if I double your salary, will you come to my house and ask me those two questions every day? Like, who am I and what am I doing? When I heard, when I read it, heard it, wherever it was from, from Brad, what, I thought of 1 Thessalonians. Why? Because chapters 1 through 3 has been a whole lot of who are you. I mean, Paul talks about the end of, of, what is it, chapter 2? Like, you, this church, you are hope, our joy, our crown of exaltation. Like, when we see Jesus, we're excited for that coming, but you are our glory and joy. Like, like we will rejoice in Jesus, and at some point, we will, we will turn and find you, church in Thessalonica. Like, who are you? Uh, chapter 1, he talks about that his choice of you, that you're beloved by God. Like, over and over again, I feel like chapters 1 through 3 has been this who are you statement that Paul would make over and over and over again. And then last week, we started chapter 4, and what is chapter 4 turned into? It is what are you doing? Like, what are you doing here with the life that God has now given you? And so what did we talk about last week? We talked about being pure. We talked about that idea of being self-controlled. Like, we're not just going to give in to every feeling and every passion that our, that our flesh has. Like, we're going to be self-controlled for the glory of God. We talked about loving one another. We talked about uh, those three things of being living a quiet life, of minding your own business, and working hard with your hand. And at some level, I feel like Paul's saying, in light of who you are, this is what you should be doing. Right? We're not going to worship like those in Thessalonica worship. We're not going to bring uh, their passion and their lust and their way of living into the God's temple and call it worship. Like, that's what they do. That's not what this God does. Okay, so, so all that to say this, though, we're going to end chapter 4 this morning. And, and the end of chapter 4 is, is this second coming of Jesus. And it almost is going to seem like that Paul went on some rabbit trail. Because it's going to be like, here's who you are. Here's, here's our story, chapters 1 through 3. And then it's like, here's what you do. You live for Jesus. And then there's going to be this like end time thing that starts in chapter 4 and ends in second, uh, first half of chapter 5. And then we go back to chapter, the end of chapter 5, and it's going to be like rapid fire. Here's what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus all over again. And so it seems like what in the world is the second coming of Jesus doing in the middle of this text? Okay, now here's my thought. My thought is, as I study this out, like it is here for a reason. And it's not like, man, here's a rabbit trail that he just got started on. It's like, you need this. Like, this is a reminder that we need. And so we're in First Thessalonians chapter 4. We're not going to necessarily totally start yet, but I feel like i got a couple more things I need to say. But we're going to start in verse 18. Okay, so last thing he says about this. 
is therefore comfort one another with these words. Okay, these words are referring to the paragraph that we're about to dive into this morning. If you've been in church for a good portion of your life, if you've heard a message on 1 Thessalonians 4, can I just say as lovingly as possible, I don't know if I ever would have left 1 Thessalonians 4 with comfort, with comforting one another with these words. This, is, this passage we're about to dive into is, is debated, it's argued. Churches have separated over how we, how we choose to define what 1 Thessalonians 4 is talking about. Like to our shame. Okay, so, so let's just talk about this word comfort. Uh, I'm going to share the Greek word. I know I don't often do it, but we've seen this Greek word like five or six times already in this book. We're going to see, Paul uses this Greek word eight times in five chapters. Okay, so the Greek word for comfort is parakaleo. It's this picture of coming alongside of. So we saw parakaleo when he says, I'm sending Timothy to you. Why? So that he could do this work of parakaleo, of coming alongside of you. Uh, he says in, in, in uh, chapter 4, he says, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus. That word exhort is parakaleo. This, we're coming alongside of you. It's not just top down. It's not just this heavy-handed thing. It's like, no, we want to do life with you. Okay, so I have this quote. Just nerd alert. To the, this is the biggest nerd alert I've ever given. Like some of you are going to get about a sentence in and be like, ah, who knows what this guy's talking about? I don't know what this guy's talking about. Uh, but I just, he talks about the word paraclete, which comes from the word paracleto. Paraclete, just, this is the ministry that Paul's calling us to. Like this is, a, this is an imperative that you would comfort or paracleto one another with these words. Okay, paraclete is a title used for the Holy Spirit. When Jesus says, I'm sending you a comforter, he uses the word paraclete, which is now in former paracleo. Jesus himself in 1 John is called our, our paraclete, and we translate that our advocate. Okay, so when, so when Paul writes here that you are to comfort one another with these words, my feeling is that word's not strong enough in English. And so I'm just going to share a guy. His name's James Orr. He died 110 years ago, so this was written, you know, barely even 1900s. Uh, all that to say, I just, I just want us to maybe get a better, better idea of this paracleto. We've seen it a lot. We're going to see it again here. Okay, here we go. Uh, that is not what I wanted. Oh, no. That's the wrong one. Well, you just have to listen. Um, that was from another message. Here we go. If now we raise the question, what is the best translation of the term paraclete? In the New Testament, we have a choice of several words. Let us glance at them in order. The translation comforter contains an element of the meaning of the word as employed in the Gospels and harmonizes with the usage in connection with its cognates, but is too narrow in meaning to be an adequate translation. That's where we're at right now, right? He says comfort to call the spirit the comforter. He says it's too narrow in its meaning. Dr. J. Hastings, in an otherwise excellent article on the paraclete, says the paraclete was not sent to comfort the disciples since prior to his actual coming and after Christ's promise the disciples' sorrow was turned into joy. Dr. Hastings thinks that paraclete was sent to cure the unbelief or the half-belief of the disciples. But this conceives the idea of comfort in too limited a way. No doubt in the mind of Jesus, the comforting aspect of the Spirit's work applied to the future. Sorrows and trials, not merely comfort for their personal loss and the going of Christ to the Father. Okay, nevertheless, there is more in the work of paraclete than comfort and sorrow. Intercessor comes nearer to the root idea of the term and contains an essential part of the meaning. Advocate is a closely related word and is also just suggestive of the work of the Spirit. Perhaps there is no English word broad enough to cover all the significance of the word paraclete except the word helper. The Spirit helps 
the disciple, disciples in all the above indicated ways. Of course, we can't just end there. Of course, the objection to this translation is that it's too indefinite. The specific Christian conception is lost in the comprehensiveness of the term, and he goes on and talks more. Okay, what is all that to say? It's to say for us to say here, therefore, comfort. It's not just like, hey, you're having a rough day, let me comfort you. Hastings has this idea that it would, it would help your half-belief. When, when, when the man comes before Jesus and says, I believe, but help my unbelief. So, so when we say that the passage we're going to dive into this morning is one that we parakaleo one another with, like it's not just encourage, it's not just comfort, like it's, it's strengthening each other. It's like we're not going to give up. Remember chapter 3, Paul's worried that maybe the church is going to give up. He sends Timothy, like, like we're not giving up. We're not calling it quits. Like because of the passage we're going to look at this morning, we can parakaleo one to another. Okay? So with that being said, let's dive into our text. One more, one more note before diamond text. We rewind. We'll jump back out of the pool. Uh, oftentimes in this passage, at least in my upbringing, there would be some chart. There would be some order of events. We're not going to have that this morning. Right? The, the word rapture is often associated with this passage. I'm, I'm not even going to go into the rapture, whether there is a rapture or not a rapture. Right? We're, we're not going to go into that world. Why? Because you're going to see in a little bit that the Greek word that Paul uses, I think there's a significance to it, and I think we miss it if we're just going to try and put it on a chart. Okay? So, uh, those of you who grew up in a church circle that I did, you might be waiting for the chart. There is no chart. Okay? Verse 13. Let's read our whole text, and then we'll, we'll dive in. Here we go. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. All right, let's dive into the text. Verse 13 and 14, why are they un, uninformed? Right? He says, I don't want you to be uninformed, which is implying that they are uninformed. So the question is, why are they uninformed? Two thoughts. One, we've already covered. Right? Why are they uninformed? As lovingly as I can say this about a church, they're just immature and ignorant. Some commentators don't even think a whole year has passed from when the church has started to when, when Paul writes this letter. So, so they might be a very mature church at one year old, but they're still a one, two, maybe three-year-old church. They're still young and immature. right? So, so there's some sort of ignorance. There's some sort of things they just haven't learned yet. There's another reason why they're uninformed, and that's because of false teachers that are in their midst. If we dive into 2 Thessalonians, which I'm debating if that's going to come right after this or not. But in 2 Thessalonians, there's, there's some controversy because some people were saying that you, church in Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians, like in this context, that you've already missed the second coming of Jesus. Like it's been 20 years, give or take, when Jesus ascended into heaven, and now we're in this church, and there's people who are saying, nope, they've already missed it. Like it's too late. You, you, this isn't for you anymore. There's people who have said that if you die, that's it, you're done. And so what is Paul saying? He's saying, I don't want you to be uninformed about the things that are going to happen. I don't want you to be uninformed about these things, okay? So what does he say in verse 14? For if we believe 
that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Okay, so, so he's confident in verse 13 that, that, uh, about those who are asleep. Okay, verse 13, I'm going to write to you. You don't want to be uninformed about those who are asleep. What is he saying? He's saying that Jesus rose again in verse 14, so we can be confident in verse 13 that those who have passed on will also rise. So what does he say? He says because of this confidence in the middle of verse 13, end of verse 13, that we don't have to grieve as those who, who have no hope. Why? Because Jesus rose from the dead, which means what? Which means we have the promise of rising from the dead. Jesus rose from the dead on Easter Sunday. Jewish tradition, that would be the Feast of first fruits. The Feast of First Fruits was an offering that you gave to God that said, God, I can give you the first of my harvest because there's a lot more harvest coming. Feast of First Fruits, he would rise from the dead. And what is Jesus saying? He's saying there's a lot more resurrections coming. So we don't have to grieve. Okay, but, but let's continue through this text then. Uh, verse 15. This is where we'll spend most of our time this morning. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Okay, the word coming this is going to, I feel like this is not going to be a normal message for me because we're going to park on this one word for a long time. The word coming in the, in, in the Greek is the word parousia, which doesn't mean much to, to any of us. Uh, every time that word is used in the New Testament, it's referred to the second coming of Jesus. Okay, so New Testament, we see that Greek word, we think second coming of Jesus. Yet, outside of the New Testament, this word parousia had a context. It had an image. It had a, a picture of, of what you would think of. So, uh, Paul uses this Greek word of coming not just to say Jesus is coming again. I don't think so. Because he picks a, a pretty loaded Greek word that has a pretty specific but big picture. And so this morning, I just want to walk through how you would use this word and and. and Bible times outside of the New Testament. Okay, so, so again, this isn't normal for me, but we're just going to tell the story here for a little bit. Okay, so this is AD 50, right? 2,000 years ago, give or take. Uh, you'd, you'd see the word parousia. Here's what this most likely context. There'd be some sort of disaster in your city. So let's just say, say Thessalonica, it was known for earthquakes. There's an earthquake that happens. There's devastation. Buildings are knocked over. All of these things. Just like what happens today, when there's some sort of destruction, who shows up? Some sort of governor, some sort of king, some sort of president, some sort of ruler, some sort of political figure shows up and he assesses the damage. He tries to encourage people. And often there's some sort of governmental aid. Okay, same thing happening in this context. 2,000 years ago, except the person was an emperor or a, a Caesar or a king, someone of that nature. So they show up, they assess the damage, they meet with people, and they leave some sort of gift, most often money. The king, emperor, Caesar, whatever his title is, would leave. The city would take the gift and begin to do the work of rebuilding. They know, they don't know when, but they know the king's going to come back and check on the work. And so what do they do? They don't just think what's best for our city. They also think what's best for this kingdom. So we're going to build, and we're going to rebuild, and we're going to rebuild the school. I don't know what they're going to rebuild, right? They're just making stuff up. They're going to rebuild a school so that we can educate our people, so that our, our city can be more educated, which would then help what? would help the kingdom. It would help the king who gave us the gift. Okay, we're going to build colleges, and we're going to build libraries, and we're going to build these. Okay, uh, Maybe the king really likes sports, so we're going to build a new sports arena of some sort, and we're going to name it after the king. 
Okay, so this is the picture. We're busy using the gift that the king gave us to rebuild the city, but to rebuild it in such a way that the king would be pleased. Okay, so, so we know the king's coming. We don't know when. So what do they do? They put somebody at the city gate, and they look for the king. He ain't hard to find. Right, when the king shows up, there's, this is not what I learned from the guy, uh, but I'm assuming there's horses and elephants, and like, I'm thinking Aladdin, right? Like, you know when, when he's coming. Right, but he sits at the gate, and he waits. And when he sees the king, what does he do? He shouts. He blows a trumpet. There's some sort of fanfare to let the city know, hey, the king's coming. I see him. And so here comes the king. One of the first things that he does as he gets close to the city is there's a cemetery that would most likely be outside most of the cities. And what does he do? He stops at the cemetery and he honors the dead. He honors those who gave their life to rebuild the city and to help build this kingdom. Meanwhile, while all this is going on, there's delegates, citizens inside the city who run outside of the city and go be with the king. And then what do they do? This is Perusia. Like, when you said Perusia in AD 50, this is what they're thinking. They're thinking of a king who's coming to check on the city. But what do they do? You would not be allowed to do this, but, but it would be as if you walked out to the king and you grabbed him by the hand and you led him through your city. And you said, oh, king, look at this. Look, King, we built a library so that we could learn more. Look, King, we built schools so that we could learn more. Look, King, we named the arena after you. Look, King, look at what we've done to not just rebuild the city, but to build your kingdom here. Like, look, King, aren't you pleased? How horrible would it be for that city to, to have a king return and they did nothing? The money that you gave us just made our mayor, whatever their title is for city officials, just made our city officials richer. But we did nothing to rebuild your, your city. How horrible would it be for a king to come back and, and the king looks and he's like, everything you built, I hate. Like you took my money and you built a lot of things, but I don't like any of it. You named the sports arena after some other king and some rival country. Like, what have you done with my money? And so the expectation with Perusia is that you're going to take the gift from the king and you're going to be busy using it because he's coming back. What do we see in this text? Verse 15. We say by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the Perusia, this, this coming of a king that we don't know when, but he's going to come. He says, we will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Again, we're using sleep. It means those who have died, uh, sleep's temporary. It's not permanent. We will rise again. All those things. Verse 16, for the Lord himself, Jesus Christ, will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God. Does this not just sound like a perusia? And if the dead in Christ will rise first, that's the first stop that most of these kings would have, would be to honor the dead and, and hear the dead. And some of these dead were martyrs for the cause of Christ in Thessalonica. Verse 17, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Like we're going to leave the city and we're going to meet him. Okay, now here's my struggle. And when I say struggle, I, this is a struggle. Like I'm not saying that for sure here it is. But when we look at this text, Paul ends it with what? With meeting them in the clouds. Okay, a parousia, Greek context isn't that you just walk out to the city and meet them there. You actually walk back and bring them into your city with you. So if you would just allow me to maybe, to, to maybe take that step and just stop and think. There's a day when Jesus returns. And, and according to this text, there is going to be a group of believers, potentially all believers, 
that are going to go meet him in the air. And from the Greek word, the context of that word is, it sounds like they're going to come and show off to the king what we've done with the gifts. The gifts of the Holy Spirit, the gift of the church, the gift of his word. The, the, the gifts that the Spirit would give each of us as individuals. And, and what would it look like for our church? What it would look like for you as an individual? What would it look like for the American church context to be able to bring Jesus into the city and say, look what we've done with the gifts you've given us? My fear for my own life, my fear for the American church, is that we're going to bring Jesus in. We're going to be looking at this huge building. My fear is going to be, look at this huge bank account. We have the greatest projector screen in all of Sarasota in our church. Like, Jesus, aren't you proud? Like, my fear is that we're going to have, and, and nothing wrong with this, but we're going to have a VBS with 8,000 kids that show up every single night, and yet none of them come back on Sunday. Like, my fear is we're going to have the coolest Easter egg drop in the history of Easter egg drops. Those who know me will know we will probably never do an Easter egg drop. But, like, like that's my fear. It's like, man, we, we dropped it from SpaceX flying over Cape Canaveral. And Jesus is like, what are you doing? Jesus is like, where's the poor? Where's the orphan? Where's the widow? Where's the outcast? Where's the down and out? Like, where are the people that I've called you to minister to? Why is your building so pretty and beautiful? Where's the mess? I called you to come alongside of people, not build beautiful buildings. And my fear is that we're going to sit here and we're not going to be busy serving the Lord. Like, he told us what to do. We don't have to wonder. Like, he told us last week, what do we do? We're going to refuse and refrain and abstain from sexual immorality. Like, that was pretty clear. That's not going to be part of our life. He made it pretty clear to me. He says that you're going to live a quiet life. The Greek word is cease from labor. Like, I'm going to take a break from work so that I can rejoice in my king and I can rest in him. Like, like he makes it clear you're supposed to love one another, and yet Jesus is going to come back and he's like, where's the love? Like, people show up in a building once a week, and that's it. And it's like, no, no, no. What is Paul saying? He's not on some rabbit trail. He's not on some, like, oh, while I'm thinking about it, let me throw in the second coming of Jesus. What he's at is like, He's called you to do these things in the first half of chapter 4. Why should we do this? We should do it because he's coming back. Because one day we want to walk through the city holding the hand of our king saying, Look, king, at what we've done for you. And it's like Jesus is sitting at the restaurant eating the world's best spaghetti, and yet he says, I ordered steak. Like, you missed it. I told you what I wanted, and we missed it. And so for us just to say... Is this a rapture or is it not a rapture? I don't think it's the point that Paul's getting at. I think Paul's getting at this picture of like, let's be busy doing the work for the king. Notice what he says though. I don't think that this verse will ever mean as much to me as it did to, to the original audience in Thessalonica. Verse 17, Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air so shall we always be with the Lord. Like that last phrase, and in in I live in a nice house. I drive the world's best car, Toyota 4Runner. Like I, it's 20 years old, it's fine. Uh, but like, like, right, like I, my life's fine. Persecution, I, I don't know genuinely what that looks like. Right, like here's a church 
that is being persecuted. Here's a church that has people buried in a cemetery out back because they've been killed for their belief in Jesus. And verse 17 happens. And it says what? It says you'll be with the Lord always forever, like nonstop. You're going to be with him. Like Jesus is coming and you get to be with it. Like, like in my heart, there's some level that's like, yeah, this world's kind of cool. Jesus, don't come back too quick. Like I think in their heart, like Jesus, come. Like Jesus, we desperately need you. I can't imagine what that would be like to, to, to be reading this. Like, like here's a church that's beat up, that's worn out. They're a year, two, three years old. They're young. And Paul says this word of parousia, like the king's coming. And I feel like at some level, there's some sort of just humanity. Like this is me reading myself into the text. At some level of humanity, you'd be like, I'm trying, Paul. Like, Paul, I'm trying. Do you not know what we're going through? Like we're trying to live in light of the king's return. And yet it's hard and it's difficult. And we're being persecuted. And we're being like, Paul, I'm trying. And then he re- the person reading this to the, to the church in verse 17 says, and there's a day coming where we will always be with the Lord. Like it's worth it. The difficult of now, the persecution of now, the struggle of now, it's worth it because there's a day coming where there's no more persecution. There's a day coming where there's no more trials, there's no more temptations, there's no more sin, there's no more cancer, there's no more disease, there's no more hate, there's no more racism, like there's no more any of this. And to me, he's saying, hey, there's work to be done and it's worth it. Why? Because one day you're going to be with him forever and there's going to be no more work. There's going to be no more sharing the gospel uh, Appreciate Austin's testimony this morning. There's going to be no more sharing the, the, the gospel, though. Right? It's, it's all going to be good, complete and perfect and wonderful. And yet the work that he's called us to do, like there's coming a day when that work will cease to exist and we'll have no more. So what is Paul saying? He's saying, do the work now. Okay, so then that leads us to what? That leads us to verse 18. Therefore, parakaleo one another with these words. Like this isn't just comfort. Is there a comfort that Jesus is coming in? Is there a comfort that persecution is worth it? Yeah, for sure. But, but like, can I just maybe be too specific in small group? Man, fair, fair game to call somebody out on this. Fair game to say to somebody, hey, uh, I think you're building the wrong kingdom. I, I think your money, your talent, your abilities are going towards the wrong kingdom. Like, it's not just I'm going to comfort you. Oh, Jesus is going to come again. I think there's also this, like, I'm going to increase your faith. I'm going to, I'm going to keep our, our, our mind, our, our focus on Jesus and his return. And so, therefore, I'm going to call you out when you binge watch Netflix too much. I'm going to call you out when your sports team loses and it ruins your week. Like, who cares? I'm going to call you out when we're, when we're not living for this, his kingdom. We start living for our own little kingdom. I'm not going to say who it is, uh, but someone in the church shared a testimony with me. And, and from the Sermon on the Mount, the person ended their testimony like, yeah, that wasn't kingdom living. And it was just a reminder to himself of like kingdom living, kingdom living, kingdom living. In my mind, verse 18 is comfort, uh, parakaleo, one another with these words, that there's a kingdom that we're supposed to be building and it's not ours. And so what do we do as a church? What do we do as small groups? What do we do in discussion groups? It's about to come. Like, what are we going to do? Is hopefully we're going to encourage and provoke and motivate and push one another to build the right kingdom. The eternal kingdom, God's kingdom, not our own. All right, so, so then the question for us then this morning is, is, is for us just to stop and ask the question to ourselves: whose kingdom am I building? Like, whose kingdom am I focused on? Like, if, if, I were, if I were given a gift today, we've been given a gift as a church, we understand all those things, but if I was given a gift today, how would I use it? 
man, new clothes, new cars, new house. I was given a gift today, new phone. I'm not saying any of those things are wrong. But it's like we can be more excited about a, a new cell phone that comes out on the market than we are about building the kingdom of God. And a cell phone will last, what, two years and then it's old? No one wants it anymore? So, so for us personally, what do we focus on? God's kingdom, our own little kingdom. But this isn't written to the individual. Right? Verse 18, the, the comfort, parakaleo, is, is written as a second person plural imperative. So it's not just the individual, it's written to the group. The group's going to comfort one another, but the group effort, right? So, so if we were to look at this church as a whole, whose kingdom are we building? Right, because we can easily find ways to build our own little kingdom. So my heart, I think the heart of Paul, is this reminder that we're going to be doing kingdom work. And so next week, I'm going to steal a little bit from Ian. He's going to talk about the day of the Lord, verse 1. Uh, don't worry about ver- day, uh, where is it? verse 2. He talks about the day of the Lord in verse 2. And yet the second half is going to be what? Be sober, which is this idea of self-controlled. Be alert. Be ready. And it's not going to be so much about the day of the Lord. except more of this idea that do the work because he's coming again. Don't be caught sleeping when Jesus returns. Okay, so for us this morning, again, what kingdom, which kingdom are we building? Individually, corporately, what does that look like? And how can we, how can we be more involved in, in building Jesus' kingdom and not our own? Let's pray this morning, and then we will observe the Lord's Supper. Father, forgive us. At times, we worry too much about our own little kingdom. Individually, we worry about our own little kingdom. Corporately, as Gospel Community of Sarasota, there are times that we have worried too much about our little kingdom. God, I pray that you'd help us to be able to focus our eyes on you, uh, on the work that your Son has done through the Gospel. Help us to focus our eyes on, on your kingdom. May we be busy doing what you've called us to do. May we be busy building your kingdom. Jesus, we thank you that you're going to return someday. We thank you that you have not just left us here alone, but there's a promise that you will return. Help us to be living for you until that day. May we not be caught sleeping. May we not be caught uh, hoarding the gift that you've given us. May we not be caught building the wrong kingdom. Jesus, help us to live for you. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.